We all know what the Bible says, but what does it mean? The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church, where the emphasis is on teaching the scriptures verse by verse. This message may be freely used and distributed at no cost. For many more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, for our study this morning, I want to look at a couple verses in Yeshua's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, I want to kind of build on what I said, actually now it's been two weeks ago, on the Supernatural book. Uh, we'll get back into the Gospel of John next week, Lord willing, but I, I wanted to, after teaching two weeks ago on the Supernatural book, I just felt like there's more that I need to say about that, so this is kind of, this kind of goes along with that message. <clears throat> if you can remember back then, I said that the more time we spend with the Lord, the more we'll be able to trust Him. You know, if you have trouble trusting God, it's because you just don't know Him well enough. And the only remedy for that is to spend time in the Scriptures. Because that's the only way you're going to come to know Him. But knowing Yahweh and walking in fellowship with Him I think it involves more than just spending time in the Scriptures. I think, you know, because we could just read the Bible and say, oh, this is great, we know everything it says. But we don't do anything it says. And I think we need to, to walk in fellowship with the Lord. First of all, we need to know what the Scriptures say. And then we need to walk in obedience to what the Scripture says. Notice what Yeshua said in John fourteen twenty one: He who has my commandments... And keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, according to this verse, who is it that loves Yeshua? It's he who has my commandments and keeps them. Now, you hear people all the time say, oh, I love God, I love God. I've told people before, no, you don't. Because according to this verse, love for the Lord is demonstrated by obedience. Now, if love is not formally defined as obedience, it's so closely connected that there seems no room for anything else. You demonstrate your love for Him by doing what He asks you to do. And notice what Yeshua promises to the person who loves Him. He says, I will love Him and I will disclose myself to Him. So love for Yahweh is defined as obedience, and obedience results in Yahweh revealing Himself to us. This is fellowship. This is fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Let's look at Yeshua's words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I kind of want to focus on these two verses. Now, it says, the Lord, He's taught, this is a, there's a context here, okay, He's been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's kind of wrapping it up here. And he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, the majority opinion, which I do not hold. Okay? Yes, I know that's hard to believe. 
The majority opinion is that these verses are talking about eternal life and eternal damnation. In other words, most people say, well, Christianity is the narrow way and it's difficult and that leads to eternal life. Now, that's the majority opinion here. We'll talk about what I think this means in a second here, but let, let's look at the majority opinion. You know, to, first of all, to help us understand these verses, let's try to set the context. Okay, these verses are not in isolation. And the first question I think we should ask is to whom was this sermon intended? Who's he talking to? Well, I think it's clear that he's addressing believers. All right, to be born again is to be a kingdom citizen. He is talking about kingdom living. This is how you live in the kingdom of God. This is kingdom living. And to live in the kingdom of God, you got to be a kingdom citizen. Well, Paul said in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, who is the us here? It's believers. In Colossians 1.2, Paul says that he is writing to the saints, the holy ones. So Yeshua's audience in this sermon is described by Matthew like this. When Yeshua saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Now, who is the antecedent of them? He's teaching them. Who's the them? Well, it's the disciples. His disciples come to him. He opens his mouth and he taught them, saying. So this sermon or this teaching is primarily for his disciples. Though the disciples were the target audience, they weren't the only audience. If we look at Matthew 7, 28, as he ends this sermon, he says, when Yeshua had finished the words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So the crowds are listening in. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So as Yeshua taught his disciples, the crowds are there listening in with astonishment. So although he is primarily addressing his disciples, he's aware that there's a larger audience here. So we can see these verses that the Lord, He doesn't lose sight of the large audience. He realizes they're there. Among other things, He warns them, people say, to start out right by entering through the narrow gate. Now, in light of the rest of the New Testament, this could refer to man's narrow and restricted way to God. Again, this is a majority opinion. Alright, these verses talk about the narrow way which is by faith alone in Christ alone. The Bible clearly teaches that. Alright? This certainly could be what Yeshua is saying in these verses. It is a truth taught throughout Scripture, but I don't think it's what He's saying. But let me first, let's look at the majority opinion here. Alright, John 14, 6. Yeshua said to them, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. That's a narrow way, isn't it? It's narrow. It's only through Yeshua. That's kind of narrow. Have you ever heard someone say, it doesn't matter what you call Him, we all worship the same God. There's just different names, right? Well, let me tell you something. There's no such thing as Christianity that stands side by side with Islam. Or Judaism. Now, people are like, what? Don't Christians have to be side by side? No, we don't have to be side by side with Judaism. Judaism denies Christ. They're Christ-denying, God-rejecting. They're ungodly. We can't stand side by side with Islam or Judaism or Buddhism and say we worship one God under many names. That's ridiculous. Christians believe fundamentally of necessity that there's one true God. And that one true God is not Allah. 
That one true God is not Krishna. It's not the God of Joseph Smith or Buddha or the Jews. That one true God is the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Yeshua. So he Paul here calls God, He's the Savior. Christ is God. He is the Savior. Yeshua is God. And as God, He seeks true worship. Worship based on a knowledge of who He is in reality, based on His revelation to man. So you can't just worship God any way you want to. And that's what Kierkegaard used to teach. It's, it doesn't matter if you're right theologically or not. It's just about your passion. As long as you have the right passion, you're okay. That's totally wrong. You can have passion all you want. People are passionate about all kinds of crazy things. It doesn't make it right. He doesn't grant man the freedom to worship in any manner he pleases. He's particular about his worship. Without truth, there's no worship of the Christian God. Now, we looked at this verse recently in our study of John. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, as I said then, the Greek text has one preposition, in, that governs both noun, spirit, and truth. It's linked by the conjunction and. This means Yeshua is describing one characteristic of worship with two nouns, not two separate characteristics. We could translate the phrase, the spirit of truth. If you're going to worship God, you must worship Him in the spirit of truth. Now, does anybody remember what I said that means? That's why I guess it doesn't hurt to review, huh? I think when He says the spirit of truth, He is referring through Yeshua the Christ. That's the only way you can worship God. See, today there's no true worship apart from faith in Yeshua. So to worship in spirit and truth is to worship through Christ. And Christianity is all about Yeshua. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. He is the only true God. The heart of the issue is who is Yeshua. And people need to understand who He really is. Who He is and what He has done changes not only our lives, but our eternal destiny. And Christianity affirms that Yeshua is God. All other religions deny it. Listen to what 1 John 2, 22 and 23 say. Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. Would Judaism fit into that category? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, they would. They, they don't believe Yeshua is the Christ. This is Antichrist. Boy, it sounds kind of anti-Semitic, doesn't it? But I'm not saying it, okay? This is what the Scripture says. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. So to deny Yeshua is to be Antichrist. It denies the Father also. And this condemns not only Judaism, but all other religions as well. So Christianity, people, is a narrow way. You come through Yeshua, or you don't come at all. Now, <clears throat> that's narrow enough. But the Gospel's even narrower than that. See, salvation not only comes through Yeshua, but it comes through Yeshua alone. Okay? That, that, I mean, that just narrows it down a little bit more. Because most forms of the Gospel being preached today in Christian churches are what I would call faith 
plus Gospels. All right? They say that faith in Christ for eternal life is necessary. You've got to believe in Christ. But it's not enough. Works must accompany faith in order for that person to make it to heaven. See, salvation is not of faith plus works. In other words, it's not Christ died for your sins and you got to help him out a little bit. It's faith alone. And you may think that's basic and beyond saying, but all religions add human works to faith. They teach that faith is not enough. The Judaizers taught a faith system plus works. Acts 15 says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. So these guys, they come down. You know, this is the home base, Judea. It's where it all starts. They come down, they're going to teach. And they said, hey, unless you're circumcised, according to custom of Moses, you can't be saved. See, it's nice that you believe in Christ, but guess what? You also have to be circumcised. Faith alone is not enough. And there are many today who teach a faith plus work salvation. And not too many teaching circumcision. But it doesn't matter what you add to it. Catholic theology, according to Catholics, which, you know, here's the thing. Most Catholics don't know Catholic theology. Okay? Most Catholics are what's called the Jack Catholic. In other words, they're born into the Catholic, you know, family. And so I'm Catholic. I go to the Catholic church. I'm Catholic. They don't know what the Catholic church teaches. All right? But this is from their teachings, by my deeds, I can not only earn merit for myself, okay? So, in other words, I can earn merit. I do these good deeds, and guess what? I'm earning merit before God. Now, watch this. This is, this is wild. But if I earn more merit than I need to get to heaven, so you're an overachiever, okay? You earn more. My extra merit goes into the treasury of merit to be applied to someone else to get them out of purgatory. Man, this is awesome. You can help other people out. I'm so good. I'm way past heaven. So I give my extra stuff to you. Okay? Is that crazy? This is salvation plus works. And it's denying the sufficiency of Christ's work. What he did is not enough. You've got to help him out. And those who hold the Catholic views are not Christians. If they believe this, they're not a Christian. Because they're denying the sufficiency of the work of Christ. They're adding what I have to help them out. The only condition of eternal salvation is faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is a conviction that He is the guarantor of eternal life for everyone who believes in Him. Now many add to what Yeshua said and they end up with a distorted gospel. In other words, they'll say, well, he who believes in me and trusts, you know, and turns from his sin and preserves in good works shall have everlasting life. That's not what it says. And that wouldn't be very comforting to anybody, okay? Now, some say, yes, he's the giver of eternal life. However, to be saved takes more than just believing. And most of the church believes that. Believing's not enough. You also have to commit your life to him. Not sure what that means. You ever sang the song, I Surrender All? Liar. <laughs> I don't believe it. I just do not believe it that you have surrendered all. Okay? You, they'll, they'll say you have to turn from your sins. Wow. Okay. All of them? Sins of thought? Sins of deed? You see, it's getting problematic here. Alright? 
they add, you have to confess him. You know, and they make that, you have to confess him before others, I guess. I, I'm not, you know, sure. You have to be baptized, etc., etc. Just all kinds of things added to the gospel. And once again, if a person is convinced that this distorted message is true, then he doesn't believe what Yeshua is saying. He made it clear the only condition is being convinced that he guarantees eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Add anything to that? You have a different gospel. To make works a necessary condition of faith confuses grace with merit. The scriptures are clear. We cannot confuse grace with merit lest we boast. And there's no one's going to boast before God. It confuses Christ's work with what we are required to do. We're required to believe in order to be saved. It's Christ's obedience that saves us. People, you know, if someone comes to you and says, well, you have to be obedient. I say, I am. Perfectly. That gets people upset. But I'm perfectly obedient because I'm either in Christ or I'm a sinner and I don't have a chance. My favorite verse, Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. We're sinners because of Adam, right? Even so, I love the other side of the equation, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through Christ's obedience, through the obedience of the one, the many believers will be made righteous. So, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ, you are perfectly obedient in Christ. It's not our obedience that saves us, it's His. And you all ought to be very glad of that. We're the recipients of the blessings of the work that He has done for us. The only requirement for salvation is that you believe the gospel. Not only is believing the gospel enough, it's the only way. And Yeshua guarantees eternal life to all who believe in Him. You believe that? That's what the Scriptures teach. Alright? But like I said, most of the church today is adding something. And I think it's partly to control, to keep the people in subjection. You have to do this. You, have, you know, we don't want to make it too easy. Well, it's very easy. You're either chosen by God or you're not. Okay? Now, in our text, <clears throat> we're told to enter through the narrow gate. So Yeshua could be teaching here that Christianity is a very narrow way. It is. You enter only by faith in Christ alone. That's what the Bible teaches. No doubt about it. I'm convinced of that. But I'm not convinced that's what Yeshua is teaching in this text. Okay, you understand? The Bible teaches it. That doesn't mean this text has to be teaching it. All right? It seems to me that Yeshua is not talking about the gate and the road to Christianity. I think he's talking about the gate and the road of discipleship. Now let me share with you why I think these verses deal with discipleship. Yeshua is here saying that this way is narrow and this way is difficult. Let's look at some of the Greek words that are used in these verses. First of all, the word for narrow here is stenos. And it means difficult. And I think it would be much better translated. Narrow doesn't give us the idea here, okay? Enter through the difficult, all right? Distressful. Narrow by reason of obstacles would be maybe a better, you know, would be adding a lot of words there, but, you know, that's give you a better understanding of what it means. 
it's difficult to continue to hold up on. Now, okay, enter by the difficult route. I don't see coming to faith in Christ as difficult. Okay? I see it as impossible, <laughs> apart from the grace of God, but it's not difficult. God gives us life and He gives us the faith to believe. What's difficult here is the practice of the principles that are in this Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Living this way, he's just finished this sermon. Living this way calls for commitment. It calls for discipline. It is very difficult. These verses have to be taken in context with the golden rule and all the things that have been said previously. This is a narrow, this is a difficult teaching. Not to read, not to understand, but to follow. Enter through the narrow gate, says Christ at the beginning here. And that this is far from being easy thing to do appears from His Word in another occasion. Look what He says, same message in Luke 13.24. Luke says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now the Greek word for strive, agonizomai. You, you understand what that comes from, right? Agonize, agony. It's a very expressive, very emphatic word. It means to agonize. Agonize to enter through the narrow gate. It occurs again in 1 Corinthians 9.25. And you can see the agony here. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. You're talking about competition in the Greek games. You're talking about an athlete. An athlete gives up everything and anything for what he is striving to do. Competes here is agonizomai. It's a reference to the athletes in the marathon races. They're willing to undergo any self-denying discipline to be in the best shape to win this earthly crown. This word agonizomai is translated labor fervently in Colossians 4.12 and fight in 2 Timothy 4.7. He's talking about a struggle here. He's talking about a battle, an extreme effort. There's almost a violence implied in this word. Now, let me ask you something. Is this how you become a Christian? You strive. You agonize. If you think so, you haven't heard anything I said so far, okay? We don't do that to become a Christian. No. This is so important. We've got to get this. I think one of the most... Important and, dis, important and misunderstood distinctions in the Bible is that, that distinction between a Christian and a disciple. Most people just see these as synonymous. You know, you're a disciple, you're a Christian, they all mean the same thing. I don't think so. I don't think that's how the Bible uses them. I think the Bible makes a distinction. You become a Christian by faith in Christ, faith alone. Discipleship is tough. It involves agony, labor, so, let's review for a second. What do you have to do to become a Christian? Believe the Gospel, right? John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Period. End. That's it. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the Gospel of Yeshua the Christ. At that moment, they're placed into the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They're indwelt by God. They're as sure as heaven as they're already there because they're in Christ. But the Scripture also makes it quite clear that Salvation is a free gift of God's grace, but it, discipleship is costly. Salvation is our birth. 
into the Christian life. Discipleship is our education, our maturity in the Christian life. Let's compare two texts. You familiar with John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You believe, you get eternal life. It's a gift of His grace. You see any cost involved there? See any effort, any agony, any labor? But notice this. Luke 14.33 So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possession. See any cost there? Now, you know, people take these two and they say, being a Christian, being a disciple is the same thing. Really? Then something's wrong with the Bible. Okay? Discipleship is a call to forsake all and follow Christ. Can this be talking about the same thing that John 3.16 is? I don't see how. See, I see discipleship as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it's begun. In other words, you become a Christian, you start to follow Christ. A lot of people don't continue to follow Christ. So are they not Christians anymore? Yeah, they're still Christians. If there ever were a Christian, there always will be a Christian. But they're now they're not a follower. And I believe that all Christians are called to be disciples. But I believe that most will not pay the price. They won't pay the price. Discipleship is costly. And if you don't understand this distinction, and you are a student of Scripture, you can really get messed up. And we had a, a couple of husband and wife coming here for a while, and he had walked away from Christ. And she was telling me he just doesn't even believe anymore. He was raised in a Christian home. His parents were missionaries. He just walked away. And, you know, so I said, what's the deal? What's the problem? You know, so I said, I'd like to talk to him about it. So he wrote me this long letter explaining, you know, the letter that he gave his pastor. And he says, pastor didn't speak to him anymore. Explaining what, and his problem was verses like Luke 14, 33. And he said, something's wrong here. Either it's free or it's costly. And I said, the problem is you're, you're mixing your things up. He's not talking about the same thing. And so I had no problem sitting down with him explaining, here's what Christianity is, here's what discipleship is. And, you know, he's like, I could see some light bulbs coming on. But he was a student. He had been in the Scripture. He saw these conflicts, and he's like, it bothered him. So he wanted to just give up. But there's an explanation. There's an explanation. you got to understand it's talking about two different things. And we'll get into this more as we get into the Gospel of John, because John, this is pretty important to him. But... Let's look at the same idea in terms of union and communion. All right? Positionally, we are united with Christ. That is our position before God when we trust Him. That's our union. But practically, we're called to walk in fellowship with Christ. And that's our communion. See, God has given us, I think, a picture of union and communion in marriage. All right? When a man and a woman get married... They enter into a relationship, a union, a covenant. Now, as the years pass, their relationship, their communion can be good or bad. Right? Matter of fact, most are bad. I mean, I just know so many Christian couples who are not really happy in their relationship. And you know why? It takes work. It takes two people willing to to work at it. You know, it just doesn't happen. 
But listen, even when you get out of communion, you're still in union until you break that covenant through divorce. But that's the thing. There's We have to understand our union with Christ, and our union with Christ is not going to be broken, people. Okay, under no circumstances, it's not going to be broken. So the analogy breaks down there. But we go, we deal in and out of communion. At times in a marriage, things are better. At times, they're not so good. Again, it all depends on how much work the husband puts into it. I'm just going to put this squarely on the husband's shoulders. I think if a marriage is bad, it's the husband's fault. I just really do. Because I think he's the one that's supposed to lead. He's the initiator. He's the one to set the pace. And if it's not working out, you know, he needs to, a jolt. He needs a kick, whatever, to get going and, and love his wife the way he's called to love. And I just think woman's a responder. When she's loved it, the way that we're called to love her, then things can be really good. But willful before God, willful disobedience breaks our communion with God. doesn't break our union, but it breaks our communion. But here's the thing, people. When we walk in communion, in fellowship with God, we have joy, we have peace, no matter what the circumstances are. I mean, Paul is an example of that, okay? Paul lived in fellowship with God, all right? Paul was no more of a Christian than you or I, you know. He didn't get any more Christ, any more of the Holy Spirit. Any, he was just a Christian like us, except he was very committed to what he believed in, and he was a very committed disciple. And so no matter what situation you put him in, guess what? He was, he was cool with it. Put him in the stocks and whip him, and guess what? He, at midnight, I will sing praise to your name. Like, mm, I don't know if I'd be doing that. I'd be praying. Get me out of here. Okay? I think the Bible speaks about our communion with Christ in many ways. And 1 John 15, it's called abiding in Christ. John uses the word mano, which means to remain. In 1 John, it's called fellowship. It's called knowing Him. In James, it's called a living faith or being a doer of the Word. Throughout the New Testament, this communion relationship, I think, is referred to as discipleship. A disciple is a follower of Christ. How many believers do you know that don't follow Christ? It doesn't make them not a believer, but it does make them not a disciple. And that's not a good place to be. John 8, 31 and 32. So Yeshua was saying to those Jews who believed in Him. Who's He talking to here? Talking to Jews who believe in Him. Christian Jews, right? So He's talking to these Christian Jews and He says this. If you continue in My Word, then you're truly My disciple. There needs to be an abiding in the Word of God. Is salvation narrow and difficult? No. Salvation comes to us by grace through faith. But discipleship is a call to obedience. It's a call to live out the principles stated in the Sermon on the Mount, stated throughout the Word of God. If it's just all about salvation, get it told us how to get saved, and then say, hey, live it up, we'll see you when you get to heaven. But He calls His people... To be salt and light in the world in which they live and have an impact on the world in which they live. And Christianity today has no impact because we're no different than the rest of the world. Now you might object to this view of mine saying that there's, you know, there's two different things here or these two roads are saying, you know, we're talking about discipleship here. Because some people say, well, you know, the one leads to life and the other leads to destruction. That's, that's talking about eternal stuff. Really? Is that speaking about eternal destinies? How do you know? One commentator writes this, 
When Jesus refers to life in these verses, he's talking about eternal life. I say, really? How do you know? He didn't say that. Could he have stuck the word eternal in there before life? He could have. The Greek word for life here is zoe. And it's often joined with eternal some 30 times and with everlasting 17 times. This would clarify that he's talking about eternal life or redemption. But Zoe by itself can refer to quality of life. It can refer to temple life, physical life. Over and over, Proverbs talks about righteousness leading to life. And it doesn't mean that if you're a righteous person, you get to go to heaven. It's talking about if you live righteously, you'll, you'll enjoy a better quality of life. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. He's not saying you get eternal life, but you'll have a quality of life that will benefit you. And he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. So you chase the evil, you suffer death. You live righteously, you get blessed for it. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart is life to the body. Life to the body. But passion, and the word passion there could be translated envy or jealousy, is rottenness to the bone. So he's talking about a quality of life. He said envy causes physical problems, but a sound heart is life. Speaking of a quality. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of Yahweh leads to life. So that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. There's a blessing in walking in fellowship. There's a satisfaction and absence of being visited by evil. 24, or 22.4 The reward of humility and the fear of Yahweh are riches, honor, and life. See, here, here, what he's saying is humility brings a quality of life. You ever see that, run across that teaching in the New Testament? God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We can preserve life through humility, right. Now let me ask you this. How many people has pride killed? And I don't mean maybe physically killed, but there's how many, how many people you know life is destroyed? Their quality of life is really deteriorated because of pride. <laughs> pride will destroy you real quickly. Okay, real quickly. But humility, humility is understanding your position before God. Your position before man, it's different. Now, the word life, as used in our text, can refer to quality of life, referring to fellowship with God. You know, if he wanted to refer to eternal life, he could have said that. Now, I'm not saying it absolutely doesn't mean that, because it could, but I just think if he wanted to say it, he could have said it. I think life here has meant that glorious state of unclouded fellowship with God. The heart's being satisfied with Him. The heart is just joying in the pleasures of God. You're in His presence, so nothing else really matters. Because you're walking in fellowship. What about the word destruction? Doesn't that imply eternal judgment? Not necessarily. Let's look at the Greek word. The word destruction here is the Greek word apalia, which means ruin, loss, destruction. It's translated wasted in Mark 14.4. But some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? This was a waste. And life is a waste when you know, you're not walking with the Lord. The verb form here is used of physical death in 1 Corinthians 10.9. 
Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpent. So the verb form is also used of unbelievers being eternally damned in John 3.16. The word perish there, he shall not perish. It's a polyme. But here's what's interesting. So people will jump. You go to John 3.16 and say, see, it means perish. It means, you know, eternal ruin, and that's the end of it. Really? Well, okay, let's go to first, let's go to Romans 14.15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy Apollome with your food, him for whom Christ died. Who's it talking about there? Well, if you hold to the sovereign grace, you have to understand that Christ died for his elect and only for his elect. And if Christ died for him, guess what? They're a believer. So this couldn't be referring to eternal destruction. You can't cause a believer to perish. It's talking about some kind of spiritual loss, though. It's used to speak of loss of reward. Watch yourselves that you do not lose that which we have accomplished, but that you will receive a full reward. So Yeshua could be using a polemia in Matthew 7.13 to speak of loss of spiritual blessedness or physical death or a wasted life. Now, I believe that the narrow and the difficult way that Yeshua is referring to here is that of discipleship. All right? He's talking about all that he has said in the sermon. He's closing out his sermon. Getting ready to give an altar call here. All right? Finishing it up. And he's calling us to live radically different lives. Let's look at just a few things that he has commanded his followers to do in this sermon. All right, you'll see how radical discipleship is. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let me ask you honestly, how many Christians do you know that love their enemies? I mean, really, love their enemies. Now, Yeshua gives some very specific... He's not saying, yeah, just feel warm and tingly about them. Okay, that's not what love is, all right? But he gives us some very practical examples of what it means. If you look at Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So here's what love does. You're to love your enemies, and here's what love does. Love blesses those who curse. The word bless in this text is taken from the Greek word yolio, and it means to speak well of, to bless, to invoke a benediction upon, to pray for their prosperity, to bless, to praise. That means that when they speak evil of you, you speak well of them. You speak of them with a heart's desire for their welfare. You don't bring, you know, a railing accusation against them. You don't try to defame their, defame their name. You don't stoop to their level. Now, we usually bless those who persecute us, don't we? I mean, just take the highway, okay? When someone cuts you off and flips you the bird, you usually bless them, don't you? I mean, you know... Yeshua said, you know, he's, this is what he's talking about here. Love your enemies. That's unique to Christianity, people. Because Christianity is supernatural, and that's the only way that's ever going to happen, okay? 
Love not only blesses, it prays for. He says, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Prayer for your enemies is not is one of the deepest forms of love. Because it means you really want something good to happen to them. You know, you can be nice to your enemy without any genuine desire for good or well to happen to them. But prayer for them in the presence of God who knows your heart has to be genuine. And you're interceding for them before God. And he's not saying pray they'd be struck by lightning. Okay, that's not what he's saying. You know, pray they'd be destroyed. Pray that their life would be miserable. He's saying that we should pray on their behalf to God. It may be a prayer for their conversion. It may be a prayer for repentance. It may be a prayer for unity. But the prayer Yeshua has in mind here is always for their good. Alright? This is the narrow way. How many Christians do you know that live like this? When is the last time you prayed for an enemy? When's the last time that you prayed for someone who mistreated you and persecuted you? See, that's how disciples are supposed to live. It's a diff, and you guess what? When you live like this, you kind of stand out. You kind of stand out because everybody else doesn't do this. Okay? I mean, it's natural to react to someone who's persecuting you with persecution, with hatred, with vengeance, with, you know, whatever, cursing. In the end of chapter 6, Yeshua says that we shouldn't worry about our lives. He says, seek first the kingdom, His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, the kingdom of God signifies the rule or reign of God. To seek the kingdom of God is to come under His kingship, to live in subjection to Him as king. The word righteousness here is the uh, kaiosune, which means a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. Living according to the will of God. Righteousness. The word here for seek, zeteo, means to desire to worship. It's to seek with a desire to worship. But not only must we seek His kingdom and His righteousness, it should be our supreme priority. The word first here in our text is proton. It means first in order of importance, chiefest of all. Holding the highest place in all our affections. The Lord is saying that the first place, the first priority of your life is to seek His will. When He's speaking of His kingdom, He's talking about our coming under submission to His reign, setting our priorities straight so that the authority of the Word of God occupies the first place in our lives. It means to walk under the reign, to live in obedience to the Lord. And he says, and all these things will be added to you. What things? They're the things that Gentiles seek, the things that Gentiles, strive, unbelievers are striving for. The Lord's telling us, don't worry about all those things. Don't we worry a lot about things? Here's the priority of believers, of disciples. Walk in obedience to God. Focus your attention on Him, your fellowship with Him, and don't worry about the other stuff. He takes care of the rest of the stuff. See, when you're in fellowship with Him, it doesn't matter because you're in fellowship with Him. That's the priority. We got it all backwards. We really do. And we very rarely seek His fellowship. We're seeking everything else. I believe that this life that the narrow and the difficult path leads to is the blessing of God. Joy, peace, contentment. They come from Christ being the priority of your life. See, nothing else can bring the joy that intimate fellowship with God can bring and nothing 
can hinder that externally. Nothing can take that away from you. It seems that few Christians today live at this level spiritually. Which is, I think, why we have so much anxiety, so much dissatisfaction in our lives. Why the church is so weak. The church has no power. Because it's not walking in communion with God. I mean, you read through the Scripture and you read about the men who are walking in fellowship with God. And it's just, you know, it's just crazy. It's amazing. The three Hebrew children. If you don't bow down, we're going to throw you in the furnace. Yeah, God will deliver us, and even if He doesn't, so what? We're not bowing down to you because this is not right. Throw us in the furnace. What? I'd be like, I'm bowing on the outside, but in the inside, I'm really not, Lord. You know, you, I mean, you make it with rationalizations, right? In Matthew seven fourteen, Yeshua says, there's few who find it. Does that make sense? There's many on the broad road. And I think that refers to Christians. There's a lot of Christians. There are people who have trusted Christ. But boy, you look at them and it's hard to tell, okay? There wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them of being a Christian, okay? Because you wouldn't, they're on the broad road. But there's few on the narrow road because the narrow road is difficult. Among those who have trusted Christ, there's few who really commit to following Him. You think that's true? I mean, I know a lot of Christians. But, you know, then you know there's people, those other pe- people, those few among that are, they're just, you'd say, sold out, on fire, what, you know. They're the people that the church thinks are a little weird. You know what I mean? Because most, you know, you come in with a, you know, just being normal Christian, on fire for God, and everybody else thinks you got a fever, you know. But that's what it's supposed to be like. How many Christians do you know that live lives according to the principles taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Most Christians I know are dominated by pride and selfishness. So they just do what they want to do and they go to church on Sunday. They read their Bible. They spend very little time seeking the kingdom of God because they're too busy pursuing their own desires and their own goals. I mean, just evaluate your own life. What are your priorities? How much of what you do how much of the money you spend, how much of the time you spend has to do with pursuing the kingdom of God? And how much has to do with pursuing self-gratification? In his book, What Americans Believe, George Barna states this. One of the most penetrating and inescapable questions that confronts America is, why am I alive? The answer he found was surprising. Most adults conclude that we exist to gratify the flesh. I don't have a problem believing that. I see it. 63% concur that the purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know? Let me share with you some alarming statistics that I found on an atheist's website. Okay? He writes this. Warning. Christianity doesn't work as advertised. Again, he's confusing Christianity with discipleship. But, you know, he's, he's an atheist, so he couldn't expect much more there. He said the divorce rate for Christians is higher than atheists. This is his arguments against Christianity not working. More than half of Christians are habitual liars. 
Few Christians have personal happiness. All this from Christian pollster Barna. See, he's quoted, atheist is quoting from Barna's book. Do you still think Christians are better than atheists? You better think again. <clears throat> we might not be better, but we have eternal life. But we should be better. This atheist goes on to quote some of Barna's statistics. <coughs> George Barner reports, born-again Christians have a higher rate of divorce than non-believers. Fundamentalists top them all. Yeah, you know what he means by fundamentalist? You know, that shouldn't be a bad word, but I think it is. You know, the fundamentalists are, you know, they're, they're the right people on everything. They're, they're basically the Pharisees, okay? And so they live to this standard that's really unattainable. And they're judging everybody around them, you know? And it's so funny that, you know, some of these people that are, you know, you see this in Christian groups, there's a leader in the group, and he's this, you know, strong figure, and you find out the guy's involved in adultery all over the place, you know? And what's the deal? So big deal. You know, there's a church here in this area. Um, I preached a message on it a long time ago. It was called Faith Alive. But it, Faith wasn't alive there because the pastor was sleeping with several different women in the church, okay? Well, the church finally found out, and guess what they did? They got rid of him. I don't get that. They got rid of him. But you know what he did? He went down the road and started another church. And I talked to a lady just last week at his church. And she said, well, I just believe in forgiveness. I'm like, the Bible says an elder must be beyond reproach. Okay? I think he's disqualified. That's my opinion. But guess what he named the new church? Genesis. New beginnings. New beginnings. <laughs> and, and I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to condemn here. I'm just saying, listen, you know, if you're, if you're supposed to be protecting and caring and feeding the flock, and instead you're raping the flock, there's a problem. But this is, this is the top of Christianity, so, you know, so to speak. So, you know. He says 87% are divorced after accepting Christ, presumably aware of the biblical teaching on divorce. 75% of born-again Christians lie regularly, continuous premeditated lies. Desiring to have a close personal relationship with God ranks sixth among 21 of life's goals tested among born-agains. Okay? So, okay, let's ask Christians. How would, how would you rank desiring to have a close personal relationship with God? Well, I'd rank sixth on my list. Really? What are the first five I'd like to know? You know? Trailing, here's one of the things that it trails, living a comfortable lifestyle. Well, I got news for you. If you want to live a comfortable lifestyle, get in fellowship with God, all right? Are people's lives being transformed by Christianity? Barna asked this. Are they being transformed? His response is, we can't find evidence of a transformation. In other words, I don't see it, he says. I don't see it. Although his statistics often show self-described Christians living lives no different from atheists, Barna's faith really didn't waver. He says this, the issue isn't whether Jesus or Christianity is real. That's not the issue. He said, the issue is, are Americans willing to put Christ first in their lives? And the answer is, no, they're not. 
And I agree with Barna. The problem is that Christians are not willing to put Christ first. Why are they not willing to put Christ first? The answer is because we are lazy, we're selfish, we are entitled people. And walking in fellowship with God is difficult. It is a narrow way, it is a difficult way, it is a costly way, and we want to just fit in or have an easy life. Let me pose a question for you to think about. Which road are you on? You know, if you're on the narrow road, your life will be lived in submission to the Lordship of Christ. If Listen to this. If you're on the narrow road, a lot of Christians are not going to want to hang around with you. I'm serious. And if you don't know that, then maybe you're not on the narrow road. Because when you're on the narrow road, Christians are uncomfortable around you because you're blowing the standard. Christ is to be our life. Not an addition, not part-time, not, you know, He is to be our life. His will is to consume you. He's to have preeminence in all we do, all the decisions we make, everything we do. Yeshua ends His sermon by stressing the importance of doing what He says. He uses this parable here as He ends. He says, therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. You heard what I said. I've been teaching you this sermon now. From five, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. You hear them, you act on them. Here's what I'm going to compare you to. A wise man. See, if you're obedient, you're wise. You build your house on a rock. Okay? You build your house on a solid foundation. And the solid foundation is obedience. And the rain fell... The floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house. People, life is full of storms. It's full of problems. It's full of difficulties. And they're going to come. But watch what happens. And yet, it did not fall, for it was built on the rock. The storms of life beat against this house just like everybody else has. But guess what? The house still stood. You know, when you follow the narrow path, you build your life on the rock. But when you don't, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, okay? In other words, you heard it. You know what you're called to do. You know how you're called to live. You don't do it. You don't act in obedience. You'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You know, that's not a good foundation. The rain fell, same storms of life come. The floods, the winds, they slam against the house. Look what happens to the house this time. And it fell. And great was its fall. So as a conclusion to his message, Yeshua tells this little story. It's known as a parable. Now let me ask you, what's the essence of this parable? What is this parable illustrating? What separates the wise builder from the foolish builder? One word answer. It's obedience, okay? It's obedience. One acts on them, one doesn't act on them. Yeshua says nothing in this parable about believing. Because He's talking to believers. His stress here is on doing. You know, you, when you talk about obedience, people say, okay, you're a legalist. No, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about Christian living. 
all Christians are called to obedience. It has nothing to do with eternal life. It has everything to do with the quality of life you're now living. I believe that. Everything to do with the quality of life. And I think that's what this parable is talking about. It's very important. We're saved by faith, but here Yeshua is talking to those who believe and He's stressing the importance of believing because if you live in obedience, you will build on a solid foundation. That's the solid foundation is abiding by, living by the principles of the truth of the Word of God. You're laying a solid foundation. And when you lay that solid foundation, the storms are going to come. And guess what? They don't touch it. They don't touch it because it's founded on a rock. Solid foundation. Beat against all at once. It's not going to move. I believe the house in this text represents our lives. Each of us is building a life. A life that will respond to many ups and downs that come our way. Many struggles, many storms. And Yeshua is saying in this parable, if you want to protect your life from damage... Now, please understand, he's not saying, if you live in obedience, your life will be perfect and blessed, you'll never have a problem. Nowhere is it saying that. It's talking, both those who built on the sand and those who built on the rock had the storms come. The storms are coming, alright? The difference is, the person built on the rock withstands the storms because they're in fellowship with God. Use Paul as an example. Man understood the storms of life, okay? Shipwrecked, beat, whipped, stoned, beaten with rods, whatever. He understood what it was about. If you want to protect your life from damage, you've got to be wise. You've got to obey the principles of the Word of God. And notice that this obedience results in a quality of life. And I don't know anybody that doesn't want to have a good quality of life. I don't know anybody that says, you know, I'd really like to be miserable and have just a lousy life. No. A lot of people do because they don't apply the principles. But it's applying these principles. It's living. So we talked last time about the supernatural book. It starts there. You've got to spend time in the Word of God. You don't know what the Lord wants from you or of you if you're not reading. And if you read it once, good for you. You forgot most of what you read. So read it again and again and again and again and be reminded over and over what the Lord wants from you, how He wants you to live. It's a different life. It's a supernatural life. And when you read some of these things about loving your enemies and you say, I can't do that, you're exactly right, you can't. And you look to Him to give you the power, the strength to do what He's called you to do. can't do it in your own strength. So we spend time in the book, we learn what he wants, and we act in obedience, trusting him to give us the strength to do it. And when we do that, we build a life on a rock. And as the storms come, the house stands. People, I can tell you so many Christians whose storms have come and their house is blown away. It's gone. It's gone. Because it wasn't built on the rock. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, Lord. I thank you for the teachings of your word. I ask, Father, that give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. Help us not to accept this teaching without studying it, looking at it from the word of God, comparing scripture with scripture. Make us diligent students, Lord, not just to know, but that we may love you through our actions. We may follow the principles of the word of God 
and live a life in such a way that we bring glory to your name. Amen.